0: If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to Mark chapter 8. We'll finish up Mark chapter 8 this morning, and uh, we'll begin our summer series in the Psalms next week, and we'll pick up the second half of Mark in the fall. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38, and a little context, uh, Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, and that's the backdrop to where we are this morning. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we love you and we bow before you and we praise you for you, uh, Father, Son, and Spirit have worked A beautiful salvation in our midst. The Father has chosen those in Jesus before the foundations of the world that we might be holy and blameless in his sight. The Son came to the earth to save and to rescue the lost. And your spirit has sealed your people, all of them, until the day of Christ Jesus. And your same spirit gives us your word and he gives us understanding and insight And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to mold us after the image of Christ through your word and by your power, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. There's a story of a family that was traveling from Augusta, Georgia to Texas. And so if you know the terrain of the United States, then you know that uh, they pretty much get on Interstate 20 and ride it on in. And uh, this is your average family uh, and had a really long journey. And so uh, the parents did what most of us do. Um, We tell the kids, hey, it's gonna be a while. Uh, Bring your iPads, bring a book, bring some headphones, listen to music, we're gonna be here for a minute. And the kids were really anxious about, well, how long will it take and when will we get there? And the parents wanted to uh, keep them somewhat in the dark so that they would not grow restless and so finally, the oldest child, uh, who can read, by the way, she notices that, man, we're, we're passing through Jackson, Mississippi, and now Vicksburg, Mississippi, and they can read signs, and they get to Gramlin, Louisiana, and, and, and uh, Ruston, and they finally cross the Texas state line, and, and the little kid is excited, and so she wakes up all the other siblings. We're in Texas, we're in Texas, we're in Texas. And so the parents, they get off in Longview and they gas up and they continue on the journey. And now the kids are disappointed because they say, Dad, I thought we were going to Texas, right? And the dad says, we're going to El Paso, right? <laughs> we're just like another 800 miles, right? of the other side of Texas, all the way, you know, near Hawaii, right? <laughs> just like... But think about that, that feeling, right? We've, we've made it, right? We're, but we still have so much more to go. If you've been to Disney World, then you know that they do this thing with their lines where they wrap you and then wrap you and then wrap you and then wrap you and then wrap you, you. And all of a sudden, you think you're about to get on the roller coaster And you kind of go through this edifice and you realize that that there's another wrapping of the line. And so on the one hand, you're looking back like, man, I'm glad I'm not you. But on the other hand, you're looking forward. I'm not there yet. Right. I think those are helpful pictures for what's happening in our passage. Last week, Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ. And that's a big thing. And Jesus affirms that, Peter, you've seen correctly he says, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by your Father in heaven. And so no longer was it an issue of, who is this that the wind and waves obey him? It seems to me that the disciples now know this is the Christ. Peter had come a long way. And yet when you look at our passage, you realize that Peter has a good ways to go. He sees Jesus as the Christ but he doesn't fully know what that means. And so Jesus is starting to tease that out. You've confessed this, and you see, and, and, and praise God, but let me show you what it truly means. Is this not a picture of us, Redeemer? That we've come to faith, we believe, we see him as the Lord of glory, and yet we also feel like, man, I have so much more ground to cover when it comes to knowing and walking with Jesus. We see, but and yet we we still have a ways to go. What I want to do this morning is, is think about a non-believer who has just professed faith in Christ. Right? And we're gonna sit that person right here. Imagine with me, right? that they know enough of what Peter knows last week. They know enough about Jesus. You're the Christ. But if we look at that person correctly, that confession is not the final destination. It's the beginning of discipleship. It's the beginning. We're confessing. They're confessing with their mouths that that they trust, and yet discipleship begins then. Now that you trust Jesus, what does it mean? What does it mean that he's the king? What does it mean? And so I imagine this passage functioning in that way. Jesus is taking a person who confesses him to be the Christ, and he is sitting them down, and he is saying, now let me show you what this means. He's having a conversation. And the first thing that Jesus would tell this person is that I am the king that had to go to the cross to save you. It's the first thing that I imagine that if you're a new believer, that, 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 that maybe you're thinking, man, maybe there could have been another way or, 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 or maybe, you know, the cross wasn't that, imp- you know, he didn't have to go and do it. And I think what Jesus is pressing in on it is, There's no other way that I had to go to a cross to save you. Now, Jesus would not deny that he's a king. He is a king, but his kingship looks different. And that's what they're wrestling with in Israel. And that's what they're wrestling with in Peter's heart. And that's what everyone is wrestling with. And here's why. If you understand what was happening in Jesus's day, they were in God's land as God's people but they did not have their anointed king on the throne. They were living under the rule and the oversight of the Romans. And so you get this image, right? Wait a minute, God, you make some promises in your word, like 2 Samuel chapter 7, that David, your son, will sit on the throne forever. And when they look at the throne in Jerusalem or wherever it would have been, they did not see a son of David, right? And so that longing is there. They know the Bible and they know the other promises that you get from Daniel chapter 7. It was I call to worship this morning. Daniel sees a vision and he sees one like a son of man coming through the clouds and he comes before the ancient of days and he's presented before him. And to this one, the son of man, to him was given glory and dominion and the kingdom that all peoples and languages and nations should serve him. That, that They know that. And yet that's not what they see. They don't see the one like the son of man giving all dominion, all authority, all power in their minds. What they see His power is still in the hands of another. And they know Isaiah and some of the promises that when he comes in his glory, that the blind will see and the deaf will hear and those who are lame will walk and those without food will be fed. And so they see Jesus doing that, right? They know, Zechariah 9, that their enemies will be judged and a righteous, reigning, saving king will be on the throne forever. This is the backdrop. And so it makes perfect sense That when they see the resume of Jesus, the dead are being raised, the blind see, the deaf hear. And in John's gospel, after he feeds the 5,000, that's the icing on the cake. In their mind, they're saying, this is our king. And so in John, after he does the feeding of the 5,000, it says they went to Jesus to seize him by force and to make him their king. Now, why would they want to make him their king? Because he, in their minds, is coming to fulfill that. And what does Jesus do? He says, no. He withdrew to be alone with his father on a mountain. It's the reason in the passages before this, when Jesus did these things, it's the messianic secret. He was always doing things, but then telling them Why? Because he knew their hearts. And he knew that they were in danger. They were in danger of turning up the volume on those kingship passages because it meant for them, we get our king on the throne, we get to rule with him, we get our freedom, we get our land. They were turning the dial of those passages up And you want to know what else they were doing? They were turning down the dial of the greater need. And the greater need was not a new king in Rome. The greater need, they needed to be made right with the real king of Heaven. And so what they were doing, they were exalting and emphasizing the thing that is of second importance, namely a good king in the land. And what this means for you to profit from having your king on the throne and what they were diminishing and turning the volume down on was, wait a minute, there's an elephant in the room. You want justice administered to your nations who are conquering you, but you don't want to deal with the injustice that you've committed against the king of heaven. That's what they were doing. And you see it flushed out in our passage. Notice what Jesus says. As soon as he's confessed as the Christ, look at verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. So notice, as soon as the confession comes, Jesus says, okay, now that you know I'm the king, you must know, you have to know that I'm a suffering king, that I must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and I must be killed. What is Jesus doing? He is turning the volume back up on the things that they don't want to talk about. Namely, how am I made right with God? They want to talk about the blessing of the kingdom without talking about the sacrifice of the Messiah that it takes to clear up the first issue. And so look at how Peter responds. He pulls him to the the side and begins to rebuke Jesus. I mean, this is Peter who just confessed Jesus as the Christ who is now rebuking the king he just confessed. And notice what Jesus does. He pulls him to the side. And he sees his disciples and rebukes Peter, perhaps in front of all of them, and says, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And I think that's what's happening. The volume, right? You want freedom. You want shalom. You want peace. You want blessing. You want flourishing. These are all good things. And turn the volume up on that. But what they're not turning the volume up on is this issue over here between you and the Lord. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, wait a minute, you got it backwards. I rebuke you, Satan. I rebuke you, Satan speaking through Peter. This sounds a lot like the garden. This sounds like Peter thinking he's wise than the wisest one to walk the earth. This sounds like Peter, uh, Satan speaking through him to deter Jesus from the cross And Jesus' mind was on the things of the Lord. It was consumed by it. And Mark does something here that I think is worth noting. Uh, Nate, you got this slide for me? We've been talking about structure in Mark's gospel. Here's what I want to call a, a marking kind of triad. And here's what I mean by that. Every single time that Jesus brings up the cross his crucifixion, his flogging, his suffering, you get the exact same response by the disciples. In Mark 8, Peter rebukes Jesus when Jesus says, I must suffer. In Mark 9, you get the same thing. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. Next slide, Nate. And notice what the disciples say, but they did not understand and were afraid to ask him. And when they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, they asked him what he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way they had argued about one another, about who was the greatest. And so Jesus is talking about suffering and they're arguing over who's going to be great. Go to chapter 10, the next one. And they were on the road. So now you're in a different place, three different cities. First, he's in Galilee. Then he's in Capernaum. Now they're almost in Jerusalem. And guess what? He brings it up a third time. They will spit on me, mock me, kill me, flog me. And look at out, They respond again. And James and John, sons of Zebedee, said, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he, said, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit at your right hand and your left. Thank you, Nate. You see what's happening? Every single time suffering, the cross comes up, they always are talking about worldly things. You catch it? It's as if they're sick and blinded to the real reality that what you need more than any single thing in this life is to be made right with a righteous and holy God. And the only way you're made right with a righteous and holy God is that the son of God must come and obey in every single way and be made like us in every single way, except without sin. And then he must go to a cross where God must carry out divine judgment. And praise God that your savior saw that where we're prone to want lesser things. Praise God we have a savior who is saying, I will go after that which is greater. And I will do it lovingly, joyfully, and sometimes fearfully. But I must go to the cross. There is no other way. I will take care of the thing that you're diminishing. And that's why I love the quote in our bulletin about, uh, it's from John Stott, He says, beyond question, Jesus knew that he would die and not in the sense that all of us know that we're going to die, but in the sense that he would meet a violent, premature, yet purposeful death. And he was not a little helpless victim of evil forces arrayed against him. Rather, he freely embraced the purpose of his father for the salvation of sinners as it had been revealed in Scripture. He knew he would die because of his own deliberate choice. He was determined to fulfill what was written of the Messiah, however painful it would be. He fully believed the Old Testament scripture to be his father's revelation, and he was totally resolved to finish his father's will and work. Nothing would deter or deflect him. Hence, he reiterated must when he spoke of his death. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected. Everything that was written about him must be fulfilled. This was the perspective of Jesus on his death. Despite the great importance of his teaching, his example, his works of compassion and power, none of these were central to his mission. What dominated his mind was not the living. What dominated his mind was the giving of his life i would tell a new christian sitting in this chair your king had to go to the cross there was no other way and he wanted to and he delights in it do you believe that this morning The greater thing that you need, he's done it. The second thing we see in our passage is that Jesus is the king who had to get the crown. Now, you might be tempted to think that, okay, God, I see what you're doing. You're telling me that these secondary things aren't important. These things like, man, I want to be able to see if I'm blind and and I want to have a a, a good shepherd over me and I don't want to fear death and I want shalom and peace and flourishing. You might be hearing me say, that is nothing. And you're wrong. These things are very important. What Israel wanted was very good. They wanted land. They wanted freedom. They wanted their king on the throne. They wanted peace. They wanted flourishing. They wanted the shalom of God. They wanted those things. And here is what you start to see in this passage is that those things are just as important to Jesus. He will wear the crown and he will usher in the kingdom that our hearts long for in its fullness. And I know that the crown is not literally in this text so kind of stay with me here. Would you agree that the beauty of the crown is not necessarily wrapped up in the worth of the physical thing that you wear on your head, right? Isn't the beauty of a crown tied to what it symbolizes from the person who wears it, right? A crown, it communicates authority, It communicates dominion. It communicates value and worth and honor. And that's exactly what you see in the passage. Did you notice that sentence in verse 31? And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must. And if you underline in your Bibles, underline that must because it's he must suffer, he must be rejected, he must be handed over, he must be killed. But you want to know what else that must applies to? It applies to that last phrase in that sentence. And after three days, he must be raised from the dead. Did you catch that? The must applies to everything, not just the cross. The must applies to the crown. Like the one who would die, he must die for your sins. And what Jesus is saying, and no, I must be raised from the dead. And you know what Mark does? He doesn't just use this language in chapter 8. Let me get that slide one more time, Nate. You see the must be raised from the dead? Look at chapter 9. Go back a few slides. Did you see that at the end of that? And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. You see it in, verse, in, in chapter 8, he will rise. You see it in chapter 9. Go two slides next. One more slide. And you see it right there in verse ten, in chapter 10. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. All right, thank you. You get what Mark is doing? Mark is saying as certain and as must, so to speak, was the suffering of Jesus. What's also just as certain is his resurrection. He will be crowned. All authority, all dominion, all power, all might will be given to that king. Now, you might be asking, Well, what's the connection, Pastor L, between his resurrection and all of these messianic hopes of this new world that he will bring into order? What's the connection? How is that connected to his resurrection with the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, with the fulfillment of the lion laying next to the lamb, with the fulfillment of the blind seeing and the lame walking, with the fulfillment that the dead in Christ will rise? What is the connection between his resurrection after the crucifixion and these other things that Israel deeply wanted? What's the connection? Here's what C.S. Lewis says in his book, Miracles. He says, the New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruit, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since death, the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death, Everything is different because he has done so. His resurrection is the new beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has been opened. That is beautiful. Because you hear what C.S. Lewis is saying? He is saying the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a first fruit. It's the first thing God gives us. To show us this whole new cosmic future that's going to be opened up because he's been raised from the dead. And so this means all of the things that Israel wanted their king to reign forever. All the things they wanted, the freedom and the peace and the shalom and no more wars and no more rumors of wars. All the things that they wanted, they were realized and lodged into the resurrection of Jesus. So that when we look at the resurrection of Jesus, it's like a down payment of everything to come. And so Jesus is saying, no, those things matter. Losing your mother, it matters Being blind and can't see now in this life, it matters to me. Getting old and aging where you don't have your vigor and stamina and it hurts you and you just want to run and leap for joy, that matters. And I promise you, I'm opening up a new world where one day you will run and leap and you will enjoy me and your people forever. It matters. He's been crowned. And I would tell that new Christian, he's on the throne. Those deepest longings that you have, I promise you, God put them there and God himself will satisfy them in Jesus. The last thing we see in our text is not only was the king here who had to go to a cross, not only is a king who had to get the crown. He's also the king who had to be given citizens. I think what happened, there's a turn in verse 34. Jesus makes these declarations in in, in verses 31 through 33. And then he turns. Notice he calls to the crowd. And his disciples were with him. And notice he starts to talk to the crowd. And doesn't this kind of make sense in our call to worship? this king, this son of man, this anointed one, notice it says that he was given dominion and glory and the kingdom. And look at that next phrase, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. In other words, he's not a king on a throne Oh, I wonder, will people worship me? Oh, I wonder, will my saving work? I, I wonder if it will be fruitful. I wonder, is there anybody out there? No, that is not how this passage reads. It reads as if this king who has died for our sins, who has been raised in power, he has been promised people who will be so moved by his love and affection and sacrifice and power that they will come. Not might. They will come and they will pour in from the ends of the earth for this king. It's not a might. And what we start to see about his citizens is that they're diverse. There's an inclusivity that's that that that's all over this passage. Daniel tells us that people will come from all nations and languages. They will love and serve and adore him. And that's one of the reasons we just sang this song in a language that we don't know because we actually believe that there's going to be people around the throne who don't speak English. You catch that? And so we're rehearsing for heaven, right? I'm going to learn this tongue that my brother and sister speaks in, because around the throne, God has promised I'm not just the God of the Americans. I got people pouring in from everywhere. And you see it flushed out in our passage. Did you notice this phrase, right? In verse 34, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, right? So don't look at the rest of the sentence. Just look at the broad appeal. If anyone would come after me. Look at verse 35, for whoever would save his life, but whoever loses his life, right? Look down, down there in verse 38, for whoever, like what Jesus is doing, he's casting a really broad net. He does not say, whoever's Jewish, come on. He doesn't say whoever's white, come on. Whoever's black, come on. He doesn't say whoever speaks English or Spanish, come on. He doesn't say whoever has money or not, come on. He doesn't say if you're male or female, come on. He does not say if you vote this way or this way, come on. Notice what he says. He says whoever. This is a really broad category. Whoever. It's like going to the briarwood pool. I see some of y'all smiling because y'all know where it is. We, we, we were going a couple of years ago, but it's kind of hard, right? Because some days there's swimming lessons. And so you show up to swim, and it's just like, oh, we're closed. We got swimming lessons. And you're kind of going back home. You come, you come back up the next day, oh, it's closed. We, kinda, we got a, a, a swim meet. It's like, man, we can't swim, right? You go back home. You come back up up the next day, and now they're swimming practice. Okay, we can't go. And then if you do get in, now it's adult swim, and all the kids got to get out so the adults can kind of do their adult thing in the pool. And then you get, like, the free rec time where just come on. Everybody, come on in. That's the image behind what Jesus is saying. It's rec swim. Come on in. If, you, if you're a professional swimmer, you good, too. But come on in. It's inclusive. The citizens given to him will pour in from wherever. But we also learn about this group. It's going to be restrictive. That his citizens will be cross bearers. Just like him. Did you notice what Jesus starts to say? He called the crowd, if anyone, broad, net, cast, will come after me, broad, net, cast, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. In other words, what Jesus is saying, he isn't the only one bearing crosses. His citizens will. Now, we're not going to get on the cross and pay for sins of people because we can't. But it is the image that life is going to be hard. They crucified me. They'll crucify you. They persecuted you. they they've persecuted me. They'll persecute you. Your life will be painful. That they rejected me, they'll reject you. That at times life will hurt hate, I mean hurt and sting and ache. And I will look at this new Christian and I will say to them, I know you think that when you become a believer, that everything's gonna be smooth sailing, right? And I know you think when you become a believer that Jesus wants to give you your best life now. And and Jesus would say, baby, girl, I want to tell you the truth. They crucified me. What do you think is going to happen to you if you're following me? You get the image here? He's saying his citizens, we can expect suffering. We can expect hardship. We can expect in a micro kind of a way. Because we identify with Jesus, we don't neatly fit in a political party. And it's going to sting, right? Because we identify with Jesus and we're called to adopt transracially, we might be outed a little. And because we identify with Jesus, and we're single, and because we won't lower our standards and settle for whoever washes up to the shore, then it might mean that you're gonna have to endure singleness for a season, and Jesus will be your all. And if he gives you a spouse, then praise God. And if he does not give you a spouse, you're bearing the cross for following him. You're valuing him more than you're valuing the entity and sanctity of marriage. You want him before you will lower your standards and take whatever washes up to the shore and you're going to bear that cross and it might mean that you're going to live in a neighborhood and all of your friends are moving to places where the property values are tripling and quadrupling and you're called by God to be omission in this particular day and you can't even get a loan for your house because the bank says you're instantly upside down and you're going to be crucified for that it's going to hurt and sting right I don't know how we're going to cross bear and I don't know what Jesus has uniquely called you to. But I do know if you and I profess faith in Christ. It comes with suffering. You're going to lose your jobs. When you walk with integrity. And it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt bad. And you're going to go overseas and pastor. And if you keep up with what's happening in the news, you might even be killed for your faith. And you're going to be scared. And I would have a real conversation with a new Christian that I know there's a lot of stuff out there that Jesus is here to give you your best life now. And I would say that is not the truth. Your best life is not in gaining this life. Your best life is losing it in him. He promises to be faithful to you. We're cross-bearing citizens. That's why Bonhoeffer says, when a man, when Christ bids a man or woman to come, it is a bidding to die. The last thing we see about these citizens is that they will be crown wearers just like him. We're cross bearers like him, but did you notice we're crown bearers as well? You start to see this image of victory, of success. You see it, that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And look at verse 35, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You hear what Jesus is saying? You will suffer and it will hurt and it will ache, but I promise you, you will save it. You will find life in the end. You will win and you will gain. In other words, Jesus is telling us, look at my life. Look at the cross, look at it. I suffered, and my and I was in the grave, and three days later I was raised in power and glory and might. And you're coming after me, called by me, moved by the cross, and you're gonna suffer. And guess what else is a promise from Jesus to you. There is nothing you lose in this life that I won't repay. I will restore. You don't need to fear a man or woman. You don't need to fear anything. I'm trustworthy and I'm good. And you're rolling with me and I got you. And I've shown you that through raising Jesus from the dead. And you, in the end, you will gain. You will gain. That's what I would tell a new believer. He had to go to a cross. There's no other way. He has the crown and no one else has it. And you're his. And you're to live a cruciform life. You're going to suffer. And you're going to meet brothers and sisters from all types of backgrounds. And you will reign with him one day. And that is our good news, isn't it? you don't know Jesus today, I'd encourage you. This life is fleeting. You're reaching, you're striving, you're grasping, and you know, just like I know, that your reaching and striving and grasping doesn't work. Jesus has come to me. You'll find life here. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and we praise you and we pray that the truth from your word would stir up our hearts to worship and adoration and faithfulness, even in the face of persecution. We love you and bless you in Christ's name. Amen.